a pair of friends made up stories from AI-generated plots, and it became a four-year podcast called... Somebody Write This! Welcome to Somebody Write This, where we use a random plot generator to give us an idea and then brainstorm how that could be a thing somebody might want to write. I'm Hannah. And I'm Jenny. And here to help us with our brainstorming today are two former guests, Sally Bays and Katie Onberg. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having us back. Oh, yay. Yes. All right, folks, so today is a little bit different from our regular brainstorming activity. Today, we are actually celebrating the 100th formal episode of Somebody Write This. We've been going for four years. And somehow, (laughs) somehow the two of us managed to stick with one project long enough that it it made it to four years and 100 episodes. It's a miracle. It really is. And so what we wanted to do, we wanted to do something a little bit different. And so we wanted to kind of look back and do a little recap on some of the ones, some of our favorites, some of the ones that we've uh, come back to over the years, as well as tune into something really ridiculous like the show so often lets us do. So what we're going to be doing is we've gone through and we've picked out some of our favorites. We've included the ones that our two guests who were able to be here were on so that they get to to revisit their own stories. And we have put the synopses into chat GPT and asked them to write a short script. <laughs> so we will be doing some play readings of these short scripts. And we will uh, we will see that when, uh, when we say somebody write this, the answer is not for chat GPT to do it because they no. go in some, some strange... <laughs> directions that do not really make it work (laughs) but we're gonna go to shot we'll be reading through some of our favorites and seeing how ai themselves try to interpret our story (laughs) so we're gonna start off we're gonna start with our newest ones and move back to the very beginning so we're gonna start by revisiting episode number 88 which the synopsis was an ensemble comedy about the meaning of the french throne (laughs) I remember that one. This was a standout <laughs> because it just got real silly. The French throne we redefined to mean uh, throne as in toilet, and it just <laughs> escalated from there. I don't feel like the AI is going to go in that direction. I feel like we're going to get a more concrete version of it. <laughs> but what I'd like to do is this one has like 19 characters, and there's only four of us here. <laughs> But I think a lot of them only have like one line. (laughs) So we're going to kind of read through this. I'm going to just assign us characters. I'm going to say, I'm going to read King Louis, KL. Jenny, let's have you read Queen Marie, QM. Uh, Katie, read Minister Pierre, MP. Sally, Maid Elise, (laughs) ME. They give them all like names and uh, titles. Uh, And then we'll rotate around. I will also be Court Jester Jacques. And Jenny will also be Aristocrat Margot. (laughs) Katie will also yes. be revolutionary Pierre. They're both uh, Pierre, so. Oh, you're just all the Pierres. Excellent. That's easy to remember. <laughs> Sally will be painter Rene. And then Jenny will be baker Francois. Yes. I will be philosopher Jean, Jean probably. Uh, and then I'll also read stage directions for all of these. Our title for this one is now Throne of Laughs. The setting is the royal court of France, a lavish palace featuring the throne room, the royal chambers, and a bustling marketplace. The scenes shift between these locations. Act one, scene one, the royal court with King Louis and Queen Marie on the throne. Do you ever wonder about the meaning of this throne? Darling, I mostly wonder when dinner will be served. 
The court laughs. Act one, scene two. Minister Pierre and Maid Elise discuss the throne's meaning. The throne symbolizes power and responsibility. I'd love to sit on it just once. They chuckle. (laughs) Act two, scene one. Court jester Jacques entertains the court with jokes. Why did the king sit on the clock? He wanted to be a hands-on ruler. Laughter fills the room. Act two, scene two. Aristocrat Margot and revolutionary Pierre engage in a heated debate. The throne is our heritage. It's a symbol of oppression. They argue fiercely. (laughs) Act three, scene one. Painter René paints a portrait of the king. The throne is like a canvas. Its meaning is in the eye of the beholder. And the king responds, I see. Perhaps I'll understand it someday. Act three, scene two. (laughs) Baker Francois serves bread to the townsfolk. The throne feeds us all in a way. The people nod in agreement. Act four. Philosopher Jean, deep in thought, delivers a philosophical speech. The throne represents the paradox of power and vulnerability. The court listens intently. Act five. King Louis, Queen Marie, and the court come together. The throne is about duty, laughter, debate, creativity, and unity. It's more than just a seat. It's the heart of our kingdom. They celebrate their newfound understanding. The play ends with a message about the multifaceted nature of power and the importance of unity and purpose. The end. Yay! Everybody clap. (laughs) Well, I was definitely an ensemble. Um, Too many characters, just like little mini snippets. Like a montage. It, it was more like reading a one a series of one panel comics. It really was. <laughs> I kind of like the vibe of like all these different people being like, this is what the throne means. It yes. was definitely the uh, the highlight reel of, of a longer script. I think that's the trailer <laughs> is what that is. Is it concerning like, that there was no dissenting opinions there? <laughs> Yeah, everybody is like, uh, the revolutionary Pierre did say it's a symbol, it's a of, symbol oppression. of oppression. Okay. That's all yeah, we yeah. got. <laughs> but he's a revolutionary, so who cares yeah. what he thinks? <laughs> I'm not sure we really had much of a character arc for anyone, though. The king started off not knowing what the throne meant and ended knowing what it meant. It's possible that Minister Pierre and Revolutionary Pierre are the same Pierre and just Ooh. go through something. I like and Minister queen... Pierre is first talking with the maid. So like there's, which is like joking and playing around with the maid. So there's clearly a a plot line in there. Maybe like, maybe (laughs) he becomes a revolutionary because he sees how her lower classes are being treated by the throne. Or she just seduces everybody. I also really like the attempt at a pun from the court jester. Yes. (laughs) The king sat on the clock because he wanted to be a hands-on ruler. (laughs) But like, that's not how that works. (laughs) One does not sit with one's hands. But a clock uh, has hands. Uh-huh. Oh! Okay, okay, you're smarter than me. Yeah. A- a- analog <laughs> the clock. The works better than I thought I did. I spend a lot of my life trying to understand jokes that are told semi-nonsensically, because I spend most of my day with four-year-olds. So. I was going to say, yeah. that GPT is a little bit like a four-year-old learning how to talk. <laughs> like, just taking the different things that they've heard from other people and mushing it together. All right. With that, we're going to uh, we're going to try out our next one, which uh, hopefully has fewer characters. So we're going to uh, travel back to our 
76th episode, which was our one with uh, Gail Carson Levine. We're oh. choosing that one because that was when people ask me like my favorite or proudest moment of the podcast. It might be that. <laughs> Yes. Um, that I was I was so excited to have her on the podcast. She wrote my favorite book as a young a young adult and a teenager. And it was so exciting. I didn't in a million years think that she was going to actually respond to me when I reached Seriously. out to invite her. And she she came on and she joined us and we made this really beautiful little story. So we are going to be reading our version of this, which I'm sure she could write it much better. Uh, <laughs> I still hope she does. I still hope she does, because I'm sure she doesn't have a million other ideas in her head. (laughs) But the synopsis for this one was, A kidnapped princess is set free and returns to the Montana Territory, where a mysterious American explores other universes. In this version, this one is called Portals of Destiny. We have three main characters, Princess Alara, who will be played, let's have Jenny take the lead on this one. Um, and then Katie will play the mysterious American. Fantastic. Typecasting. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and then uh, Sally will play Sheriff Jake. And I will play Villagers, Guards, and Travelers, basically the ensemble. And I'll do stage directions again. So here is Portals of Destiny about the kidnapped princess who returns to the Montana Territory. Setting. The Montana Territory, a rustic frontier town with a saloon, a sheriff's office, and a portal to other universes. The scenes shift between these locations. Act one, scene one, a saloon in the Montana Territory where villagers celebrate Princess Alara's return. I never thought I'd escape my captors. We're glad you're safe, Princess. The mysterious American enters. I heard rumors of a portal to other universes. Act one, scene two. The townsfolk recount tales of the mysterious portal. Some say it's a doorway to other worlds. A world of endless possibilities. Act two, scene one. Princess Alara shares her ordeal with mysterious American. (laughs) My captors mentioned they discovered another universe through a portal. Let's find this portal and uncover the truth. Act two, scene two. Princess Alara, mysterious American, and Sheriff Jake embark on a journey to find the portal. I can't believe I'm on a quest. To explore other worlds and seek answers. Act three, scene one. They reach the hidden portal. Is this it? The doorway to other universes. Act three, scene two. They activate the portal and step into another world. This place is unlike anything I've seen. What if we can't return? We'll find a way back. Act four. Princess Laura, Mysterious American, and Sheriff Jake face challenges in the alternate universe. We'll make it home. We have each other. They eventually discover a portal back to their world. Act five. Princess Alara, Mysterious American, and Sheriff Jake return to the Montana Territory. Oh, I'm back where I belong. And I've explored other universes. The play ends with a message about the power of exploration and the importance of returning home. The end. Oh oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, obviously, uh, Sheriff Jake's the eye candy in this one. (laughs) Right? I was like, Sheriff Jake is just like tagging along for no reason and doesn't do anything. But he has his shirt off the entire time. Sheriff <laughs> Jake's doing all the stunt work. It's fine. Absolutely. I love this, like, like the laziest way out. This is clearly, they face challenges in the alternate universe. They go back home. Right. <laughs> like, that's the playwright being like, here, um, I don't know what happens here. Just, they face right. challenges. <laughs> just pantomime something. 
You'll be fine. When Sheriff Jake loses his ability to speak and must emote through his nipples. <laughs> yes. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's the challenge. As we move on, I am probably not going to read all the act one, act two, because they just put an act break and a scene break like every five lines. <laughs> yeah. And in many cases, it's there's not a break in time or space at all. It's just continuing on with the story. Yes. <laughs> so they don't have like a real solid understanding of, of how that works. <laughs> And the, the audience can't hear these. Uh, it, the AI also tends to put a stage direction of how to, uh, like an emotion before every single one of these uh, lines. I think my favorite one uh, here is that at the very end when the mysterious American says, and I've explored other universes. Transformed. Uh, transformed is how he's supposed to say that. <laughs> I, I imagine that the mysterious American is now like a giant bald eagle or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, like, fully, like physically transformed. I... Love that. I want to read a story about a Montana princess and her giant bald eagle friend. Somebody write that. Somebody write that. (laughs) That's our next one. All right. Well, we are going to jump back a couple episodes to episode 73, which was the one that Sally joined us for. I don't remember how we actually worked it out, but the... The plot was a manager of an orphanage and an aviation giant try to drink themselves to death, but it's not long before they reluctantly gather. I remember them being like maybe sisters <laughs> who are drinking themselves uh-huh. to death together in the orphanage that I don't, I just remember clearly having the image of Miss Hannigan in my head as the manager yes. of the orphanage. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember this one very, very well at all. My memories of these started to get fuzzy. And so as I was pulling ones to to do, I was like, I don't remember a lot of the newer ones because I haven't listened to them as much. So I'm going to have to, maybe by the time we do episode number 200, I'll remember more clearly some of these later ones. <laughs> Yes. Our new title for this one is Lift Off from Despair. Our characters are the manager of the orphanage. We'll have Katie play the manager. We'll have Sally play the aviation giant, known in the script as just giant. <laughs> uh, I will play the bartender. Uh, and let's have Jenny play the patrons and the stage directions for this one. A dimly lit bar with a few patrons scattered around. The bar is the main focus of the scenes. The manager sits alone at the bar, nursing a drink. What's the point of it all? A distraught giant enters and takes a seat beside the manager. I thought I had everything, but it's all empty. They sit in silence, both drowning their sorrows. Bartender pours them another round of drinks. To oblivion! To the abyss. They drink in despair. As the night progresses, they exchange stories of their struggles and losses. I run an orphanage, and we're always teetering on the edge of closure. I built an aviation empire, but I've lost sight of the skies. The manager and giant continue drinking, their self-destructive journey deepening. Shouldn't we do something? Let's give them one more chance to gather their senses. The manager and giant become increasingly intoxicated. You know what's funny? Despite our differences, we're both crashing! Oh, yeah. We've both fallen from the sky. The manager and giant hit rock bottom, unable to control their drinking. I can't do this anymore! Nor can I. The other patrons intervene. This is enough! They help the manager and giant to their feet. The manager and giant, now sober, sit at the bar. What were we thinking? We were lost, but we found each other. 
they reluctantly gather their strength to face their problems. I won't let my orphanage close down. I'll just rediscover my love for aviation. The manager and giant now united exit the bar with a sense of purpose. The play ends with a message about finding hope and support in unexpected places. Aww. <laughs> okay, okay. That was like a, a, a first, someone first learning how to write a little mini 10 minute script. Yeah. <laughs> and being like, cute. yeah, I like that the, the patrons just like, they, the, they, they just wait, let them get super drunk and then they help them stand up and then they're fine. <laughs> That's how you sober up. You just stand up. You just have Did someone. You know you can only be drunk if you're sitting down. <laughs> That's Apparently. how, the, that's how <laughs> that works. Giants obviously have a really high metabolism. Yeah. So <laughs> they, he just processed the alcohol really quick. Yeah, yeah. Right. That, that makes total sense. I really do enjoy how, like, the initially aviation giant was just going to be, you know, a person who was Howard Hughes. A mogul. But this is, yeah. but this is just literally just a distraught giant enters. And so this is very much, you know, an actual giant. Oh, 100%. Who happens to love aviation. I also like how chill the bartender is who they're like, their self-destructive journey. And my response as the bartender is, let's give them one more chance to gather their senses. (laughs) So I can sell more drinks. Right? Like, I don't feel like that's going to happen while I'm continuing to sell them more drinks. (laughs) You can't over-serve a giant. It's true. It's true. (laughs) I did really enjoy the constant aviation puns. (laughs) Right? Great, great voice work, by the way. I believed that giant. I was going for Andre the Giant. Yeah, yeah. It, it who, came through. Uh, who was in one of our other episodes. That's right. <laughs> who actually is one of, in one of the ones that is coming up because that was a really weird, unique one. Although Andre the Giant does not show up in the prompt. And so he's not going to show up in the script. Oh, <laughs> he was added in later. Um, all right, we with that, we're going to scoot on to uh, episode number 68, which is one of the ones that Katie was able to join us for. So let me read the synopsis. But then I have to tell I have to tell our audience the name of these characters. Yes, um, especially my favorite, the, the first one. So this one, the premise was when corrupt police is haunted by visions of his dead wife, she sets out with a coma, her man suffering a family loss and a dress shop lease to steal 50 cars. <laughs> Which is right. a nightmare of a synopsis. I, I have the vaguest memory of this, and it feels a little like a fever dream. Yeah, right. right. Yes. <laughs> like, we're just like these random disparate elements coming together, just showing up. Too many things happening in this, so we'll see how the AI tries to pull these all together. But my favorite fact about this is that the main character is named Detective Corrupt Cop. <laughs> <laughs> Furthermore, known as DCC in the in the, the thing. You know, in um, case you had any confusion about his character. Yeah, yeah. Right. This guy is corrupt, y'all. I want to know if that was his name, like if he was born, would given this name, and was, was like, well, I his, guess I have was to. Was that on his application to join the police academy? Because <laughs> please hire me. My name is Corrupt Cop. <laughs> Blame my parents. <laughs> they really wanted to be a cop, but corrupt. Exactly. Uh, Corrupt? So t- that's my middle name. No, I mean literally. Like, literally. Not- my first name is Detective. <laughs> I'm not actually a police officer at all. <laughs> <laughs> so our title is Haunting Redemption. 
and let's have uh katie since you were the 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 one who started this who were in this episode let's have you be detective corrupt cop fantastic uh sally you're gonna play emily dcc's deceased wife i don't know if she has any lines (laughs) Uh, i'm going to play sarah who is emily's sister who's in a coma so i don't know if i have any lines Jenny is going to be DCC's brother who is suffering a family loss. Okay. I'm going to give Sally uh, Maria, the owner of a dress shop, because I don't know if dead Emily speaks. Um, And then I will also be police officers, car owners, bystanders, and stage directions. Excellent. I'm Sarah and the ensemble. (laughs) Setting. A gritty urban neighborhood, a hospital room, and a dress shop. The scene shifts between locations. Uh, We start with a dimly lit urban street. DCC stands alone. He appears troubled and haunted. Emily, why won't you leave me alone? I've done terrible things! The ghostly figure of Emily appears. You know what you must do to find peace. (laughs) Emily disappears. Act 1, scene 2 does actually switch locations to a hospital room where Sarah lies in a coma. John sits by her side. Sarah, please wake up. We've lost too much already. DCC enters a dress shop run by Maria, searching for a way to redeem himself. I need to find a way to make things right. Redemption comes from within, my friend. DCC visits Sarah in the hospital. Sarah, I need to make amends for my past actions. John, who had left, re-enters the room. Oh, it's not too late to make things right, brother. DCC returns to the dress shop. What if we can help you find your redemption? How? We can steal 50 cars, sell them, and donate the money to those in need. (laughs) (laughs) All right, DCC, Maria, and John begin their mission to steal the cars. The audience watches a series of car heists, some comical, others intense. Act four, the stolen cars are lined up on the street. We've stolen 50 cars, but we've also found redemption. The police arrive. Freeze! The officers, in a surprising twist, express empathy for DCC's redemption mission. We've been watching. Turn these cars in, and we won't press charges. The stolen cars are returned. Sarah miraculously wakes from her coma, and the group reunites. You've done good, brother. Emily's ghost appears for one last time. You've redeemed yourself, my love. Find peace. Emily's ghost fades away. The play ends with a message of redemption, family, and the power of good deeds. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, DCC is played by Vin Diesel. (laughs) Well, the Steel 50 cars, I remember commenting on this in the episode, clearly came from the plot for Gone in 60 Seconds, where they had like however much time. And so I like that this plan is we'll steal the cards, we'll sell them, we'll donate the money, redeemed. I like like Maria in a dress shop. It's like they've taken bits from um, West Side Story. Yeah. I also really, like, I'm intrigued by this scene where John is the one pleading with Sarah. So John is the cop's brother and Sarah is Emily's sister. And so they are not, they're like, so they're distantly related. (laughs) Like they're. Oh yeah. It's, it's his sister-in-law's sister. Yes. (laughs) And so it's, I don't really know why John is so intertwined. He's suffering a family loss according to the thing. So I guess maybe they're connected. Brothers married sisters. 
Well, his oh, sister-in-law maybe. died. That yeah. would, there we go. That, there's a whole backstory there that didn't get explored fully. Right. <laughs> okay. Okay. I can buy that. They they obviously met at the wedding before um, Emily tragically choked on punch. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And that sent Sarah into a coma as well. All right. Well, we are going to jump back to episode 58, which was the one that featured Andre the Giant. But that was not who the plot began being about. <laughs> Our plot for that one was Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> must choose between his desire to find right. a unique and beautiful therapeutic outlet and the responsibilities of receiving daily visits from his downstairs neighbors. That's right. I remember this one. We just, we somehow decided that his downstairs neighbors were Andre the Giant and, and Samuel Beckett. Because That's right. They actually, the because, yeah. So this was my, the my theater friend Josh, guy. who was like obsessed with the, oh. uh, with the story of Andre the Giant and Samuel Beckett, who actually knew each other. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And back in in France, uh, when Andre the Giant was a, was a child, and so he's like, "They're they're downstairs neighbors. I want to find a way to put them in." And we're like, "Okay, so here we go." <laughs> um, so, uh, but they are not in this one. They are not. They're just downstairs neighbors. So I guess if anybody wants to do an Andre the Giant impersonation for neighbors, <laughs> you can. This title is Jabba's Dilemma. Uh, so Sally, you will be playing Jabba the Hut. Jenny, you will be playing the downstairs neighbors. Okay. Both of them, I guess, speaking at the same time. Oh, no, we do have neighbor one and neighbor two. Okay, so let's make Jenny neighbor one and Katie neighbor two. Okay. And then I will be therapist, Dr. Serene. Love it. I will also be the assistant, whose credit, whose assistant, and then in parentheses, assist, is I guess how they're going to refer to them. Let's make Katie the pizza delivery guy. Excellent. And I'll do the stage directions And you, Jenny, will do the stage directions. So we'll let uh, Sally just focus on being Java. (laughs) All right. Setting, Jabba's luxurious penthouse apartment featuring a unique therapeutic outlet. (laughs) What does that look like? (laughs) I I don't know. Sorry, sorry. Uh, And an expansive living space. The scenes shift between Jabba's apartment and the therapist's office. Which is not in... Which is maybe his apartment. apartment. <laughs> Apparently. It's it's like separated into two parts. It's one, one half of it is this unique therapy place. And the other one is where he lives. But they're both in his apartment somehow. <laughs> and picturing like a Tatooine themed yoga corner or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Jabba is in his penthouse apartment gazing at his prized possession. A rare and beautiful aquarium. Ah, oh, my lovely aquatic friends. You bring me peace. The doorbell rings. Ding dong. Jabba enters the door, revealing his enthusiastic downstairs neighbors. Hey, Jabba! I thought we'd drop by for our daily visit. What's new in your world today? I was just spending time with my aquarium. The neighbors chatter on. Jabba visits Dr. Serene's therapy office. In his apartment, I guess. Mm, You're seeking a unique and beautiful therapeutic outlet, Jabba? Yes, but my neighbors constantly interrupt me. Dr. Serene suggests a compromise. How about setting boundaries and finding a way to enjoy your therapeutic outlet while still respecting your neighbor's needs? Jabba returns to his apartment, trying to balance his desires with his neighbor's visits. Jabba, have you heard the latest gossip? Jabba attempts to focus on his aquarium. Act 3, Scene 2. Jabba approaches his neighbors. I appreciate your visits, but 
I need some personal time to enjoy my aquarium. We respect that, Jabba. Jabba enjoys the therapeutic benefits of his aquarium in peace. Balance has been restored. The pizza delivery guy arrives. Pizza delivery for Jabba the Hutt! The play ends with a message about finding a balance between personal desires and social responsibilities. The end. <laughs> was there a pizza guy in there? There's, I don't know. <laughs> there was no assistant in there. Assistant, parentheses, assist, did not show up. <laughs> but like, I suddenly and desperately now need a Renaissance type painting of Jabba the Hutt with an aquarium and a pizza. <laughs> With a, with a right? next door, <laughs> like like across right. the room from him. Yes. yes. <laughs> Admittedly, I'm not a big Star Wars fan, but is Jabba capable of moving from location to location? Like he can kind of very slowly. He can like slug yeah. his way along. Yeah, kind of like it's for the best that yeah. his therapist's office is in his, yeah. in his <laughs> right apartment. Next door. Presumably, the assistant parentheses assist called the for the pizza delivery, right? <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. Like, you'll need a pizza after uh, <laughs> setting boundaries with your neighbors. <laughs> Just treat yourself. You did a hard thing. All right. Well, that was that was wonderful. We are going to jump back to like episode that one. 53, which was the other one that Katie was in. Um, I got to admit, I don't remember this one at all. So I'm definitely going to have to go back and re-listen to it after this. Um, so let me... Uh, See, this me... one I do remember. Oh, okay, good. Uh-huh. Well, you'll have to fill me in a little bit and remind us which direction we went. Our plot was a pop star finds her love in a confused girl through drastic measures. I think we took it in like a fan fiction uh, direction. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She was like writing fan fiction about herself. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Okay. So I vaguely remember it being connected in my head to the movie Perfect Blue, which is about fan, like mm-hmm. fandom in the early days of the internet. That makes sense. Okay. Our title is Love Unveiled. We again have three primary characters and then ensemble and stage directions. So I believe it's my turn to be the pop star, <laughs> uh, known as P.S. <laughs> Jenny will be Confused Girl, C.G. Oh, good. Uh, Katie will be manager, M. And then Sally will be uh, other ensemble characters and stage directions. All right. So our title is Love Unveiled. Setting, a bustling city, a concert stage, a backstage area, and a coffee shop. The scenes shift between these two locations, or these locations. Act one, scene one. The stage is set for a pop concert, and fans eagerly await the pop star's performance. CG is standing among the crowd, looking lost. Light shining bright, but something feels missing. Yes, <laughs> CG and is drawn to her. Act one, scene two. After the concert, PS approaches CG, who is still lost in the crowd. Hey, you seemed a bit lost during the show. Everything okay? I don't know. I feel like I've lost something important. Maybe we can help you find it. What's your name? I'm confused, girl. <laughs> the script says CG, but CG is short for confused girl. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Act two, scene one. Confused girl meets with pop star and her manager in a coffee shop. Confused girl, pop star wants to help you find what you've lost, but it might involve some drastic measures. I'm willing to try anything. We'll start by reimagining your life. 
<laughs> Confused Girl's transformation begins with pop star guiding her through a makeover and lifestyle changes. <laughs> like, I can't believe I'm doing this. <laughs> the transformation montage includes shopping, workouts, and rehearsals. Act three, scene one. A new and confident confused girl takes the stage as a backup dancer for pop star. We're rewriting the stars, rewriting our fates. Confused girl's performance is exceptional and the crowd cheers. <laughs> Act three, scene two, backstage for the show. I did it. I can't believe it. You found your confidence, confused girl. Although maybe CG now stands for confident girl. Um, (laughs) But did you find what you lost? Huh. I found myself and it feels amazing. Confident girl and pop star continue to grow closer. I never thought I'd find love in such a drastic way. Sometimes love takes you by surprise. The two embrace. The play ends with a message about self-discovery and love. The end. Oh, I'm so glad we got a makeover montage in there. Me too. (laughs) Like, I feel like that is absolutely the heart of every boy band fan fiction, where the boy band member sees the girl in the crowd, says, "You look lost. Let me help you be a backup dancer." Right? (laughs) Like, that's 100. There have got to be like infinite Harry Styles fan fictions where that exactly happens. That and my mom sold me to One Direction. Fan fiction gets gets weird tropes that it digs into. <laughs> oh gosh. Do you think in 20 years there's going to be like a Hallmark style TV channel with this kind of programming where every everything's every just AI movie. written? Yeah. This play actually had an a, a sensible arc. It did. Like this it was is. the first one that like kind of I could track most of this. Makes a coherent story. Yeah. Yeah. I like which it, is, which is nice. That was that was the closest to to a real story. Still, you know, still a little messy, um, and still clearly, you know, it, it could be written by an eleven year old who was working through yeah. stuff. All right, let's jump back to episode fifty three, which I chose just because it was a personal favorite of mine. Um, our premise for that one was uh, this: a small time bank robber and Woody Harrelson fulfill the promise to their recently deceased best friend in Russia. Fantastic. This one became. Yes significant because Woody Harrelson was a character and then we ended up like looking up his his actual personal life and weaving some of that in because he had he had a wild story about how he had like married someone essentially like as a joke and then went back to to, and then they but they stayed married for like a year because when they when they got around to going back to the place where they had gotten married to annul it the place was closed Oh no! <laughs> like he closed down or was gone or something, and so like closed for the day or closed forever. Closed forever, I think, if I remember correctly. And so they just stayed married for a year, and that was just such an amazing, like, an amazing story <laughs> that we yes. ended up working it all in. So, um, Woody Harrelson and the the bank robber and Russia all became part of the story. Right. So our title for this one is "Promise to Moscow." Um, Jenny is going to play the small time bank robber called Rob. Cool. Very, again, like like Detective Corrupt Cop. Uh, Katie is going to play, is going to play Woody Harrelson. Sally is going to be the ghost of best friend, who is called Gus. 
I will be Russian contact. And while I'm at it, I'll also be the Russian henchman and the stage directions. <laughs> Cause I can't, it looks like the Russian henchmen have one line. So that'll be fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Setting. A dimly lit underground hideout in Moscow, Russia with a table, chairs, and a map of Moscow. The scenes shift between this hideout and Moscow streets. Rob and Woody sit at a table, examining a map of Moscow and discussing their late best friend. Oh, Gus always dreamed of coming to Russia, seeing the sights. He wanted to visit the Red Square and have a drink at a Russian bar. Don't forget, guys. Gus's <laughs> ghost suddenly appears. You promised me, didn't you? Gus, you're really here. What's going on? You promised to fulfill my dreams. No excuses. Rob and Woody set off on their adventure in Moscow, sightseeing and enjoying the local culture. Gus would have loved this. It feels like he's with us. The friends encounter a Russian contact. You need something more than sightseeing? What do you mean? An opportunity you won't want to miss. Rob and Woody get involved in a heist. Oh, this isn't what Gus wanted. We have to finish this and then honor his memory. The heist goes awry, and they find themselves cornered by Russian henchmen. This is the end for you. Gus's ghost reappears and offers guidance. You don't have to do this. Robin Woody decide to surrender. <laughs> Gus was right. This isn't what he wanted. They are arrested by the Russian authorities. Act 6, back in the hideout. Thank you for choosing the right path. We'll fulfill your dream, Gus, and make things right. The play ends with a message about the power of honoring promises and making amends. <laughs> so apparently they were arrested and then immediately released. Right. <laughs> I guess if you just surrender, it's like the it's like the 50 cars. The police are like, oh, if you just return them, we'll let you go. <laughs> the best part is in my head. I was going to do Rob with a New York accent, but it came out vaguely Irish. So it I just come out. With it. <laughs> I particularly loved the, the contrast between act two, scene one and act three, scene one, where they're off sightseeing and when he goes, Gus would have loved this. And then they get involved in the heist and Rob says, this isn't what Gus would have wanted. I was like, we have to finish this. And then we're in it now. Like, I'm Rob well, the robber and I just can't help myself. <laughs> and I, I have to, like, this is a bank robber. <laughs> so, like, I have to think that he, that that led to him being involved in the heist. Like, maybe he's not as innocent as he seems. <laughs> he's like, uh, yeah, we'll just do a little heist to uh, to honor Gus's memory. Maybe I'll can get Woody to do this with me. I mean, I mean, maybe it's compulsive, like he, like he's a bank robber klepto. You know, oh, there like you go. Just seeing the sights. Oh, look at this beautiful bank. Twitch, twitch. You know? <laughs> we are going to jump back to episode forty, which actually was requested by our guest at the time on the on that podcast, which was J. Trevor Robinson. And so we are going to figure out what the AI would have done with that. I vaguely remember this one as well. As we get back, I, I remember some of this. So the plot is a playwright retaliates against those responsible, but a team of rebels changes the sound and style of country music forever. <laughs> I don't uh, remember this one. <laughs> I remember the playwright being like really uptight and like about art. And then they do something weird with like, maybe they write a weird musical. <laughs> as I start saying this, I obviously don't remember it. So. Yeah. So we'll see where the AI goes with this. So we're going to have Katie play the playwright. 
Okay. Sally is going to be the rebel's leader. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be the record label executive. R.E. Jenny is going to be all the country music stars. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> and then I will also be musicians, right. audiences, and critics. And uh, I'll, Jenny will also do stage directions. Okay. All right. Oh. Setting. A country music recording studio, a theater, and various country music venues. The scenes shift between these locations. Act one, scene one. A recording studio where playwright confronts record, record label executive. executive. <laughs> you rejected my play and now you control country music. It's all about business, my friend. Playwright leaves vowing revenge. I'll get revenge. Playwright forms a group of rebels determined to change country music. We'll make country music authentic again. Act two, scene one. Country music stars perform at a theater. Audience. We miss the old country music. Country music stars receive criticism from critics. The rebels gather and confront the country music stars. Join us and change the face of country music. It's a risk, but we're in. Rebels and country music stars collaborate on a new country sound. Let's show them the real soul of country music. A live performance of the new country sound. Audience. This is the country music we've been waiting for! Country music venues fill with enthusiastic fans. The Rebels movement gains momentum. Thanks to the Rebels, country music has changed forever. It was our revolution. Record label executive faces a declining business. <laughs> country music has transformed, thanks to the Rebels. And the critics say, country music has a new soul. The play ends with a message about the power of art to change the status quo and the importance of staying true to one's roots. <laughs> I do not think that's how that works. <laughs> that was like the least coherent script we've had today. <laughs> so they have a new sound and also just changed the industry by all going indie? I guess. <laughs> like, I lost my business. I enjoyed the first line where the playwright yells at the record label executive for rejecting his play. <laughs> Both a record executive and a Broadway producer. And so, like, all I can imagine, and now you control country music. Maybe so, like, it is a play about country music that only plays in Nashville. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, my other thought was that he was, does not understand that the play was rejected because the record label executive is like, I don't, I don't do that. It was actually a script for an audio drama, so. <laughs> Starring all the country music stars. Exactly. And, and I like how easy it is to get them on board being like, let's change it. And they're like, all right, here we go. <laughs> I'd like to think that the Rebels are actually a band called the Rebels. I love that. And nice. Some random people. Yeah. Yeah, we did have like groups of people talking in this one <laughs> more than the yeah, other. Awkward. Entire group of people being like, let's change like a music. <laughs> Like a Greek chorus. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. We were going to move then back to episode number 21 because that was our most listened to episode ever. Featured um, YouTuber Ellie Beatmaker as our guest. This was the premise. Two friends indicate a willingness to be killed in the north of England with the help of a mean lord and a group of 30-year-olds who have been friends since high school. However... <laughs> When I attempted to get uh, ChatGPT to tell this story, they said to me, I'm sorry, but I cannot create a story that involves characters indicating a willingness to be killed or engaging in self-harm. 
Uh, and I tried to convince it. And I said, it's okay. It's not about promoting self-harm. And they said, I understand you may not intend to promote self-harm, but I would still like to ensure that any content I create is safe, respectful, and appropriate. If you could provide more context or details about the scenario or concept you have in mind, I'd be happy to assist you. So I said, yeah, it's just a thriller adventure story. It's all about supporting life. <laughs> they said, thank you for clarifying. In that case, I'd be happy to help you create a thriller adventure story that focuses on supporting life and does not involve any harmful or negative themes. Please provide more details. And so I gave them the plot again. And they said, I'm sorry, I cannot create a story or script that involves this, even if it is meant to be part of a thriller or adventure narrative. So um, no good with that one. <laughs> so unfortunately, we cannot hear the AI version of that. However, yeah. if we hop back to episode 19... We can hear the one for our second most listened to episode of all time and also just a definitely a personal favorite. You know, that really might explain the lack of uh, character development in these things if you can't yes! have yeah. any sort of... If the, yeah, well, it, it like limits... After school special morals. Yeah, <laughs> it limits uh, how much you can do there. So we'll go, we'll go with our backup. We'll go with number two, which uh, was a great story. The promise was chickens frantically search for their missing conspiracy, which is in her South Bronx apartment. <laughs> yes. And the title also brought demons into the story. Yes. So it became all supernatural. Oh, good. Most of these characters are chickens. Excellent. Um, so Sally will be playing Henrietta, chicken one. I will be playing Cluckington, chicken two. <laughs> Jenny will play Eggsy, Chicken 3. Amazing. Yay! Katie will play Henrietta's Conspirator, known as Conspiracy. Yes! And then let's have Katie also play the South Bronx resident. Okay. And Jenny will read stage directions. All right, here we go. A bustling neighborhood in the South Bronx, New York City, featuring various locations like streets, a park, and a South Bronx apartment building. The scenes shift between these locations. Henrietta, Cluckington, and Eggsy frantically search the streets. We've lost conspiracy. Where could she be? She said she had important information. We must find her. Ah! The yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. They ask a South Bronx resident for help. Lost your conspiracy, huh? Good luck with that. The chickens move on. <laughs> the chickens search a park. She could be anywhere. We need clues. Look, feathers! <laughs> they follow a trail of feathers to an apartment building. She might be in the apartment. <laughs> <laughs> the chickens confront the building's resident. Chickens, what do you want? Aww. We're looking for our missing conspiracy. She's in your apartment. The resident lets them into the apartment. There you are. We were worried sick. What's the important information? It's about the best way to cross the road. <laughs> <laughs> they all click with delight. The play ends with a lighthearted message about the importance of friendship and community. <laughs> version of that joke I've ever heard in my life. I love that so much. Uh, that is fantastic. I can't believe I didn't... we didn't see that coming. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's like the longest setup. <laughs> Just yes. the 
I think that might be my favorite script that we've read so far. Uh, I also really love like this this resident who shows up and is like, whatever, good luck with that. And then is the same person who's just like, oh, you're here? <laughs> and then there's just, like our missing conspiracy, who I guess is just a person. <laughs> right, I know. Is hanging out in the apartment. Oh my gosh, that one was wonderful. Nonsensical, but wonderful. But wonderful. Yes. But wonderful. That was hard to get through. <laughs> so much clucking. As I know. A, as a former chicken mom, I do think there should have been a little more danger in there because chickens are really bad at, you know, self-preservation. <laughs> and wandering around the South Bronx wouldn't be a great place for them. Wandering into random apartments. <laughs> like I said. Right. And not to mention trying to cross roads. Not to mention trying to cross roads. <laughs> they need that information from conspiracy. <laughs> All right. We are jumping back to episode 15, which was the first of many series, accidentally, of supernatural sports stories. Oh, yeah. But the plot doesn't actually lend itself to sports. <laughs> we took it in a oh. direction. So our plot yeah. was, on Christmas, a vampire starts shooting at him. And in doing so, somehow knows a lot about angels. Oh, that's right. And we decided it was like shooting a basketball. Yeah, we decided it was shooting <laughs> basketballs. <laughs> And so, our, right. so we had, we had, I remember a vampire and angel basketball game, like on Christmas for like yes. the soul of Christmas or something was what it ended up being, <laughs> Amazing, uh, which was fantastic. So uh, this one probably features less basketball, but let's, let's find out. I will be playing Victor, the vampire. Jenny will play Angela, an angel. It's a little, little on the nose for that. I love character, it. But whatever. <laughs> um, Katie will be playing David, Victor's target. All right. And Sally will be playing Sarah, David's sister, the sister of the target. Uh, Katie will also play Detective Smith, and we'll have Sally read the stage directions. Right. So this title is Christmas Revelation. So this is our beautiful, this is our, our Hallmark Christmas movie written by AI. <laughs> the setting. A snowy park at night where Christmas celebration is taking place. The scene shifts between the park, Victor's hideout, and a police station. Act one, scene one. A Christmas celebration is in full swing in the park. People are singing carols, exchanging gifts, and enjoying the festive atmosphere. Sarah, this Christmas is amazing! I told you it would be special! Act one, scene two. Victor, a vampire, watches from the shadows. I can't join in the festivities. But I must find him. Victor confronts David in the park. You can't escape your past, David. Uh, who are you? Victor shoots at David, narrowly missing. Why are you doing this? I know you've met an angel. How do you know? Act 3, scene 1. In Victor's hideout, he continues to question David. Tell me about the angel. I met her on a Christmas Eve years ago. Angela, the angel, appears. Victor, you know the truth about us. What are you, Angela? I'm an angel. And you're one too, Victor. Whoa. <laughs> scene one. Detective Smith investigates the shooting. What's going on here? He's not just any vampire. He's an angel like Angela. 
Victor and Angela share their stories. I forgot my true nature when I became a vampire. We can find redemption. Victor and Angela leave the world of vampires behind. Christmas is a time of miracles! The play ends with a message about the power of redemption and the possibility of change. (laughs) What a twist! (laughs) Didn't even know angels could become vampires. Well, actually, we did. Oh, ha 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 ha. (laughs) Got a Buffy joke in there. (laughs) (laughs) That took me too long. (laughs) Oh, man. My goodness. We have two more on the docket, one of our personal favorites, and then we'll go back to our very, very first one. But before we do that, we have to we have to go to one of the ones that we refer to a lot. This was one of our very earliest episodes, episode 14. And the plot was simply a movie about the shifty and harsh life of the seven friends Rasputin. Yes! This one has a lot of characters because Rasputin has seven friends. Um, I don't know if any of them, if they will all actually talk. But we will do our best. In the original one, it ended up being a wacky sitcom about uh, Rasputin who had split himself into, because it wasn't the seven friends of Rasputin. It was the seven friends Rasputin. And so, so we decided it was seven Rasputins who were seven all friends. Seven Rasputins <laughs> who all lived together in the same house. <laughs> and it was just like a, a little anthology movie of the seven of them interacting with each other in different ways. And I, I believe it was like through like eons of time too. Wasn't yeah. It? Yeah. Like, it was like over, it was, it was yeah, very over complicated. decades and centuries. <laughs> All right. They gave information about all these characters. So let's start. Um, Jenny is going to be playing Rasputin. Yes. Katie will be Olga, Rasputin's love interest. Ah. Sally will be Vladimir, Rasputin's best friend. I will be Anya, Vladimir's sister. Jenny will be Ivan, a troubled war veteran. (laughs) Katie will be Natalia, a struggling artist. Uh, Sally will be Dimitri, a charismatic con artist. Uh, And then I'll take on Irina. Katie can be the various other supporting characters and I'll do stage directions. Okay. Uh, So let me (laughs) refresh and make sure I know what I'm doing. (laughs) All right. I'm going to attempt a Russian accent. We don't know what it'll come out as. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. There we go. Setting. Early 20th century Russia. Featuring Rasputin's dimly lit apartment, the streets of St. Petersburg, a local tavern, and the opulent world of the Russian elite. The scenes switch between these locations. Rasputin's dimly lit apartment, where his friends gather. Life is tough for all of us. We must stick together. It's Irish again! (laughs) (laughs) Irish Rasputin. No, no no accents. (laughs) Ridiculous. We always have old friend. (laughs) Arlene went into the accents. (laughs) Oh my gosh. At a local tavern, they discuss their struggles. Rasputin, you should propose to Olga. I can't provide for her. (laughs) Shut up. Oh, and then Ivan is still Jenny. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I forgot. No, so I was laughing at Ivan's line. Oh, hold on. Hold on. I want you to say Rasputin's line and then immediately say Ivan's line because those two are hilarious back to back. (laughs) Sorry, let's let's start with Anya's line again. Uh, let's, uh, let's let's go for Act One, Scene Two. Uh, Rasputin, <laughs> you should propose to Olga. I can't provide for her. I can't escape the horrors of war. 
we jump to, Rasputin finally proposes to Olga. I may not have much, but I have love to offer. That's all I ever wanted. Rasputin's friends navigate their own challenges. My art is criticized, but I won't give up. I have a plan that could change our fortunes. The friends confront a turning point. I can provide opportunities, but at a price. The friends become entangled in the world of Russian elites, leading to conflict and moral dilemmas. Oh, our loyalty is being tested! The consequences of their choices become clear. Rasputin, this life is shifty and harsh! We'll find way out! The friends face a final confrontation with Irina. You thought you could escape the underworld? The friends make a daring escape, choosing freedom over the harsh life they once knew. We may not have wealth, but we have each other. The play ends with a message about the strength of friendship and the pursuit of a better life in the face of adversity. (laughs) Does it? Never in history has Rasputin been such a noble character. (laughs) So this is the second one. Uh, I guess we did choose two Russian-specific prompts. We had two about people just getting tangled up in in underground dealings in Russia. (laughs) What, What even happened to Ivan? He just, like, walks through. He's just, he, he can't just escape the horrors of war. He's, he's just like this guy in the tavern crying about war, and then he never shows up again. I really like the that our synopsis is a movie about the shifty and harsh life, and then we have Anya just saying, Rasputin, this life is shifty and harsh. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's like that moment where they say the title of the movie. <laughs> just in case you didn't know. Yeah. Well, in this case, I guess they're saying the tagline. Yeah. <laughs> and I like how they set up the dramatic arc of Will Rasputin propose to Olga, and then in the next scene he just does. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Drama over. <laughs> We're like, there, there goes that. <laughs> All right, folks, we are going to close out with the very, very first one we ever did. Back, uh, it was just me and Jenny trying this out, not sure how this was going to go. This one uh, is just simple four person story. Oh, I guess prisoners are in there, maybe. But it was, yeah, a simple little two-person story originally with a couple extra characters, but it is the story of a lazy, useless brother's youth set in a prisoner transport plane. Now, interestingly, this is one of the only plots where somebody actually wrote yeah. something for it. They, they wrote a one-act play for us, which yeah. we read in another episode, I believe. Yeah, this was, this was one of the ones where... Um, it was one of the more serious ones that happened because it became like this, uh, you know, this story about these two brothers kind of reconciling and uh, and figuring out their lives. And we'll see if we get such a, such a lovely, sweet story in this one. Our title here is high altitude reflection. Chat GPT is better at generating titles than my randomly chosen one. (laughs) (laughs) They usually involve puns, but they are at least relevant. (laughs) Katie, you will be playing Alex, the lazy, useless brother. Ah, Yes. Sally will be Mark, Alex's brother, who presumably is not lazy and useless. Uh, I will play Prison Guard 1, and Jenny will be reading our stage directions. Uh, ChatGPT also mentions as characters Prison Guard 2 and Prisoners, but they have no lines. So we will leave them out. Inside a prisoner transport plane at high altitude, with a row of seats for prisoners, guards, and a small window to the outside world, Alex and Mark sit side by side on the prisoner transport plane. Other prisoners are scattered around. I can't believe I'm here because of you. I know I messed up, but we'll get through this. The plane hits turbulence. Brace yourselves. 
Alex grips the seat in fear. The turbulence subsides. We're okay. I should be at home, not here. Mark tries to reason with Alex. You've been lazy and useless for too long. It's (laughs) time to change. Maybe you're right. Alex and Mark engage in a heartfelt conversation. I've wasted my youth being lazy. It's never too late to change, bro. The plane descends, signaling the end of their journey. The play ends with a message about the potential for personal growth and change, even in the face of adversity. (laughs) Yeah, you know. (laughs) This isn't that far off from we ended up writing it as like this little set during the course of the plane ride. And they kind of work out. So it's basically what we came up with. So I think that just Benny and I are basically just AIs. Yeah, obviously. (laughs) Like when left to ourselves, we just write the same story that ChatGPT would. Although I don't know that we would have used the uh, the sincere line, you've been lazy and useless for too long. It's time to change. Well, and if it's Mark's fault, they're there. Yeah. All like a big ploy to get Alan. Yeah, like, Alex let's just think of it. Which of them is going to be the industrious and useful one? That's going to be the one orchestrating any major crimes. <laughs> it's right. Maybe he's meaning you've been lazy and useless for too long and I've had to plan all the crimes. <laughs> you've just been dead weight in all my schemes. And we, we got caught because I got over overburdened and overwhelmed and planned too many crimes and you should have pulled your fair share. I just, I just love the easy resolution of this. Mark's like, you should change. And Alex's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the so end. I, I did this for a little bit. I tried to use these to... Um, I was playing around with it for writing like little mini two person scenes with conflict in them for maybe using with like my students, something Uh simple and easy, but it always would wrap them up like that. It would always end with them being like, (laughs) they would, whatever conflict it was, they'd be like, we don't have to fight about this. And the other one would say, I know, let's be friends again. (laughs) It's so nice. It's so nice. Chat GTP is just a tender heart. It really is. It's just like, let's just resolve everything. And don't write any stories about people who are willing to be killed. (laughs) Well, that takes us all the way back to our early ones. If you have a favorite that did not get mentioned on this episode, uh, please let us know. Maybe we'll save it for episode 200. (laughs) I would love to, going forward, um, have just generate these for the ones we're doing and invite our guests to read it along with us uh, and perform it as and present it as part of our Patreon and release the uh, the AI generated scripts. But all that being said, obviously, you know, even while we're playing around with AI scripts, uh, we want to really acknowledge that AI writing is a little bit of a, of a threat <laughs> to the writing uh, world right now, that there are absolutely authors who are worried about losing to losing work to AI. And while we're having fun with it today and goofing around with it uh, and making it clear that we are, AI is not currently in a place where it can in any way <laughs> replace the hard work of, of actual no. humans. So we wanted to encourage you, if you have any, if you have anything that you would like, we would much rather read human things. <laughs> on the show the AI ones the AI ones are fun to giggle about and fun to laugh at but for anything with actual depth and thought and cleverly constructed jokes we would love to be able to share and support any of the writing of the folks that we have listening to this podcast yes please some human write this yeah absolutely so with (laughs) 
with that, we want to take a moment to do one of our regular segments on the show and let each one of us share a story and promote a story that we think our listeners should check out and uh, send people off to check out and support other other writers and other creatives. So I'm going to recommend a book that I just read called The Code for Love and Heartbreak. It's written by Jillian Cantor. And it is an absolutely delightful young adult retelling of the story of Emma, where Emma is, in this case, clearly a neurodivergent coded character who is president of the the coding club at their school and is trying to write a dating algorithm, (laughs) a dating app that will help her figure out and mathematize and (laughs) algorithmize the complex situation that is social interaction and dating. And it's super charming, super sweet, um, definitely a a really lovely revamp of a story that's already really good. Like most versions of Emma are just really charming and fun. I have, I have yet to see one that I actually like. So check out all versions of Emma, but specifically the code for love and heartbreak, uh, the book by Jillian Cantor. Jenny, what uh, would you like to, to promote and plug and support for other authors today? I just recently read a book that is one of those books where why didn't I read this earlier? Why didn't I know about this? You know what I'm saying? I read Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. It's his first solo novel. uh, So it was written a while ago. And it's about this guy who is just like ordinary British dude. And he somehow it's, it's a, what's, what's the phrase? What do they call it? A magic city story where like the, in, in this case, the London underground is like, a parallel universe of London. Okay, okay. So you have London above and London below. And London below is where people find themselves when they fall through the cracks. And they get forgotten by the by London above. Mm-hmm. And so he accidentally falls into this world after helping a girl. And so it's his journey through the London underground and the adventures he has there and the things he learns about himself if, if you're familiar with Neil Gaiman's writing, I don't even need to say anything because that guy can turn a phrase. Mm-hmm. His descriptions of things and the little like half jokes in his phrasing are just beautiful to read. And the story is engaging and mysterious and there's danger and horror elements. And anyway, it was just a delight to read. And I'm so, so glad I did it. So if you're a fan of Neil Gaiman or even if you're not, read this book, read this book. Yeah. Awesome. I've, I've read some by Neil Gaiman, but I haven't gotten to that one. So I, I should, I'm sure it's on my list. Move I'll this, get one, to move this point, one up but, the list. Yeah. All right. We would like to invite our guests to do this as well. So Katie, do you have a story that you would like to recommend to our listeners? Sure. I'll also uh, recommend a Jane Austen adaptation, actually. Excellent. <laughs> um, I just finished reading The Scandalous Confessions of Lydia Bennett Witch by Melinda Tobe. And it is part retelling and part sequel of Pride and Prejudice, where Hmm. Lydia Bennett is a super powerful witch. And Kitty Bennett is actually her familiar, a cat that has been glamored into human form. um, And kind of how that affects what we think of as kind of the most frivolous part of the Pride and Prejudice story. um, And what happens as she's telling that story after the fact and the kind of hot water it gets her into after her portion of Pride and Prejudice is, we assume, neatly wrapped up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's fantastic. It sounds amazing. That sounds lovely. Sally, what would you like to recommend to our listeners? All right. This is not um, 
on the same vein as all of your totally fair stories. Um, so I'd like to recommend the history of underclothes by C. Willett and Phyllis um, Pennington. And it is kind of this really awesome reprint. Um, actually, no, it isn't. It was, yeah, in, um, 1951, uh, detailing the history of underclothing from the medieval period up through the 1930s. Okay. And there's lots of diagrams, there's photos, there's, so if you're a costumer or just really into underwear, um, this is the book for you. Huh. That is fascinating. I love that it's something completely different than what we were recommending prior. I do a lot of historical research. So um, I don't get to read stories very often, uh, but unless they're, you know, like children's stories. So, uh, but this one is, it's a pretty interesting read. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we want to say a huge thank you to Katie and Sally for uh, joining us on this. Uh, That is our episode, folks. As a reminder, you can find us every other Thursday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can join our Patreon for bonus material. Today, we especially want to thank our patron, Kate, for supporting us. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WriteThisPod or on Facebook slash SomebodyWriteThis. And if you've been inspired by this episode and have questions or comments or a script or anything else, email us at SomebodyWriteThis at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be back with episode 101 in two weeks, and we will see you then. And as they say, many a time a good man fell on a cow pie.